Welcome to Podship Earth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. None of us would be listening to this podcast if it were not for our mothers. Our mothers made us, our mothers shaped us. From love to confidence, to compassion, to frustration and judgment, our mothers have a greater impact on our emotional development than anyone else in our lives. From the earliest origins of our consciousness, we have viewed the world around us through the lens of our mothers. In ancient Greek mythology, Gaia is the ancestral mother of all living things. And today, the two words, mother nature, remain the most powerful invocation of our relationship to the rest of the planet. We often think of ourselves as separate and distinct from the rest of the natural world. Our mothers are a constant reminder of the absurdity of that proposition. This week, I talk with my mother, Helene, about her passion for life and creativity. Helene grew up in Queens in New York City. Her mom, Bert, was educated, religious, and tough. Her dad, Abe, worked in the lumber business and was the sweetest man I've ever met. Helene's brother, Bobby, was three years younger. And at 15, Helene went to the University of Michigan, then Oxford, and by the age of 22, received her PhD from Columbia. She worked in Congress during the Kennedy administration, writing the legislation that created the Peace Corps. She taught political philosophy at American University, with John Dean of Watergate fame and Congresswoman Donna Shalala being two of her students. Then everything changed when she discovered sculpture. Helene and her new husband, Yorick, my dad, moved to Paris, where she studied under Osip Zadkin, the famous Russian-French sculptor. She was hooked. She had her first big show in New York in 1976. Helene made a decision fairly early in her career that she would divide her time between being a mom when at home in England and being a sculptor when in Pietrasanta, Italy. Pietrasanta is where artists from Michelangelo to Henry Moore have gone to find marble and the artisans who know how to shape it. In 2011, Helene received the Order of the British Empire from Queen Elizabeth. Helene is now one of the world's most revered and sought-after sculptors. My parents still live in the house in which I was born, in the small village of Grantchester, outside Cambridge, England. And that's where I sit down and talk with my mom. It's about four o'clock, so it's nearly pitch black. You know, it gets dark very quickly here. I forgot how far north the United Kingdom was. We just had a late lunch. Helene made the best carrot ginger soup. Thank you. I love making soups. What's the secret? The secret is that I count on them. When I'm in Italy working, I make a soup in the beginning of the week. I have to eat that soup all week. Yeah, but it could so, be terrible soup. No, I wouldn't eat it if it was terrible. So I have to learn to make really good soups. You didn't learn from Bert, your mother? Oh, no. No. She was a good cook, though. <laughs> yeah, but she didn't make... She made chicken soup. She made the best chicken soup. Was it a, like a very Jewish neighborhood that you grew up in? Oh, no, we were the only Jewish people in the entire neighborhood. And what was it like being the only Jewish person? I never thought about it. I didn't but realize you, I was. But you went every Friday night to your to the Seder. We did go. We used to go on Friday night and Saturday morning. Even. On the holidays, we walked. We I mean, didn't they seemed walk. quite religious. They had a kosher. Yeah, they kept kosher. I mean, we you must have known religious. that you were Jewish. 
Yeah, but I didn't know nobody else was. And even How for Christmas, yeah. we always did Hanukkah. And my mother, as religious as she was, we always did Christmas. And they took Christmas very seriously. Why? Because they felt that they didn't want me to be different from everybody in the neighborhood. And that I would be, I'd be suffering. And where did you go on vacations? Oh, I don't think we really... We maybe went to some place in New York State. We never went in very far. What school did you go PS to? PS33. And how far was that from your house? It's about five blocks. Oh, so you'd walk? My mother, when it rained, my mother would always come to get me and bring me lunch, so I had lunch there. And what did you have for lunch? I had my favorite. What? <laughs> White bread with spinach and potatoes. <laughs> I had, that was my favorite sandwich, spinach and mashed potatoes on white bread. <laughs> That's amazing. So every day I'd come home and go downstairs and play the piano. And I think my interest in the piano was as much to do with that space and solitude. Did you ever go to Manhattan? Yeah, we, I went to Manhattan, and then that was a formative thing on me because I had a history teacher who really, really liked me. She took me to jazz clubs, and she knew some mm. jazz pianists, and wow. she was really amazing. I, and that had a big influence on me because then I got much more excited about the piano than I'd been before. Talking of jazz, actually, that's one of the greatest gifts that you have given me, um, which is a, a love of music and, and particularly the blues. And I remember going with you to see Earl Hines in Cambridge when I was like five and you put me up, lifted me up on the stage so I wouldn't get crushed. And Earl Hines, when he was like playing the piano, would make silly jokes about me. It was, it was an amazing experience of many where we've gone to see music. Um, talking of which, like, what... What were your parents like? What What are your memories of them? When I went to university, my father was always adoring. Everything I did was perfect. And he was so proud of me, and, and he always talked about me, and I always felt praised by him. But my mother was very critical. She was quite a critical person. And not The birth that I knew. I didn't get along that well with her. And I respected her enormously because I thought she was really intelligent. And she, her comments, if it was about something I'd done or written or said or performed, I could count on that, to be honest. Whereas my father, you know, just, he, he was always praising. Mm -hmm. I never, ever heard them argue. Mm -hmm. I never heard, I and mean, he adored her. He, he mm. felt he had been so lucky to find her, and mm -hmm. it was a big step up in terms of his mm. social background, his intellectual achievement background. He That's just idolized my mother. Mm. He never criticized her. Mm. And he always brought her things and bought flowers on Friday, and, and it was very moving because she was the dominant one, definitely. Mm -hmm. And... He just loved it like that. She was good in business. Mm -hmm. She helped him. And he did very well. People loved him. Mm -hmm. I mean, everybody loved him. 
When did you go to college? You know, in those days, mm-hmm. you could just skip grades. So mm-hmm. when I finished PS33, I was younger. And I almost didn't graduate because I had a lot of teachers who didn't like me because I was very willful and I don't know, I was willful. My mother was a very big influence on me and she loved poetry, she loved beautiful things. Mm-hmm. She took great, great care about beauty and everything looking wonderful and, and flowers and colors. She she was very aware of all of that. And how did you decide to go to Michigan? My first choice was Wellesley, and I had gotten in, and I was very thrilled. But when they give, did the room assignments, they discovered I was too young. So when you got to Michigan, did it feel freeing? No, it was great. I, I, was, I didn't feel homesick or anything. I felt mm. taken up. I was, then I was really popular, and that was so surprising to me. And, I was all these boyfriends, but there you could go out every night with somebody mm-hmm. else. Or, and I, I think I was quite shocked that I hadn't seen myself as that mm-hmm. kind of a girl. I loved university. I loved it. Well, I always thought that one of the reasons that you strived academically so hard was to escape Jamaica, Queens, that that was part of your exit strategy. If I wasn't looking for learning, I could have done a lot of things. I thought I wanted to be an actress. I could have just run away and been an actress. I could have gone off with some boyfriend. When you drive from JFK, you go right through Queens and just the little houses. It seems like confining, like a... Yeah, it was, very, it was very confining and stifling, but I think that I wouldn't have gone to university that early if my desire had only been to escape my family and my, my environment. It was a, a larger one. It was to, to extend what I knew, extend my possibility. I think I was very aware of that. That's amazing because most people at 15... Are just worried about you know getting rid of a pimple. You were like expanding <laughs> your horizons. Most people don't realize that you started your career in political philosophy. You got your PhD from Columbia, studying John Locke. And tell us about because because you and I actually have a lot in common. When I was studying law, you kind of reminisced how much you enjoyed that kind of thinking and that discipline. And how did you end up? becoming a political philosopher before you became an artist? From the time I was a little child, I was fascinated by dreams. I was fascinated by the things I saw, the things I imagined, and I would try to tell these to people. And nobody ever got at it. The words I was using were so banal and so so absolutely uninspiring that my great dream, people would look at me as if, yeah, so what? And I guess I thought I just didn't know enough. My words weren't good enough. I didn't have the language. And so I really had this feeling, I've got to get more words. I've got to learn more. And at some point, I'll be able to express what I'm thinking, what I'm seeing, my visions. So I was on this tremendous race to get words. I think that was why I kept learning. I kept studying. I kept working 
And actually, I did my dissertation on John Locke's belief that we had to develop a theory of morality, a theory of ethics that was not based on language because he himself saw the inadequacy of language in expressing something as intense as moral feeling. And so he was searching for a mathematical language, a symbolic language, that could put the uh, precepts of moral thinking into a symbolic structure. And I did that, and even that failed. John Locke failed terribly. So after getting your PhD, you married Yorick, and then about the same time you made a huge and radical change in how you saw the world, which launched you into the world of creating sculpture. We went to the National Gallery in Naples, and I suddenly saw a case of sculptures, small sculptures from the Cycladic period, 2500 B.C., And I was just taken aback because each one, there were small heads for the most part that had perhaps only one feature. They were one-dimensional in a sense. You just saw kind of a face mask. And yet each one of these was like an essay on that person. You could talk for hours about what you saw in that head. And the idea that you could have a visual language that could be so strong... It just shook me. And I said to York, I want to do sculpture. Hmm, It was a vision. It wasn't a vision that was in a dream. It was a vision that happened in in daylight. And as we went on in in that gallery, from the Cycladic period to the Archaic period, which was about 500 BC, very different work. Instead of being so reductive, suddenly you saw... The, the Greek sculptures, which were very expressive, arms over the head or over the eyes, a lot of maybe drapery, a lot of expression. And perhaps it was that possibility, the juxtaposition between the two, the extremely reductive and the almost over-the-top, that I saw my language. It was it was really a visionary experience. And then Yorick got this big job with Newsweek in Paris, and I guess everything changed. He said to me, what will you do in Paris? And I had no hesitation. I said, I, I want to be a sculptor. And from then, I, I've never looked back, really. Wow. So for artists just beginning their careers, it can seem very daunting. So you need to have that conviction that you have something to express. I think that's the beginning. There's something I knew I need. I wanted to express, a lot of things, a lot of ideas and visions and dreams. And you have to real, really believe the medium you choose as an artist is the way of doing it. So that for so long I thought it was language and it wasn't. And suddenly I had that realization, no, it's in my case it was clay. As soon as I started working clay, it was as though there was a complete line between my brain and my hands and my emotions, and I I was stunned by by it. In that same way that sometimes people can play the piano, and they've never been trained, but the music is coming to them. 
I felt the forms were coming to me. But that's not enough. You you then have to go on to realize that there there is technique, there is craft. So my first pieces were amazing to me, but I I needed to learn, I needed to find out, I needed to develop. And I think after that you need to stand away from it and question what you're doing. And I think those are some of the things that made me successful as an artist. I really thought I was good. I didn't think I was great, but I really believed in what I was doing. And very often mothers and fathers of young people who want to do sculpture say, oh, if you could just help me convince my daughter or my son that they're, they're great, they've got to go on and do this. They don't believe in themselves. And I say, don't even try. If they don't believe in themselves, they'll, no one ever will and they'll never succeed. But a lot of people are plagued by self-doubt. Your mother was often not the most confidence-inspiring <laughs> person. So how did so you just naturally had confidence in this one in this area? I mean, you are a very confident person. I think you've given both me and Ramy confidence. Where do you think that confidence came from? Fighting my mother probably standing up <laughs> And I mean, my one of my favorite stories is how one day when I must have been almost 40, uh, I was staying with her in Florida and I was going to a meeting with people who were commissioning me to do some work for a ship. And I just got to the door, they rang downstairs and my mother said, Helene, are you going out in that? I said, well, you know, I'm leaving now. I am going out in this. She said, oh, it's completely inappropriate. Nobody wears white after September 1st. I said, you know what? I have been inappropriate my whole life. And look where I am. And that did quiet her. And and it was a realization that I've always was fighting her sense that I wasn't appropriate, which meant I wasn't conventional. I didn't do what she expected me to do or people didn't. So one of the aspects that that I think you helped engender in me is this relationship between art and spirituality. Your work evolved from being about relationships, generally three figures, to a place where now it's been very, very focused on organic forms from nature and that relationship between nature and spirituality. Jung said when an artist goes deeply enough into his own center, reaches his soul, what comes out is not his dream, but a universal dream. And this is what Thomas Mann also wrote about, saying that only recently had he in his life realized that the artist isn't reflecting his soul, but a a communal soul, a spiritual soul. So I think that's the beginning, the idea that you reach within your own being to go beyond yourself, beyond the self. Virginia Woolf, who wrote about the idea that if you're distracted, you cannot ever reach that self. If you're working and the dog's barking or there's a voice coming from somewhere or someone's saying, I need this, distractions keep you from reaching that inner self. And in a, in a way, 
That was her explanation of why women have not become great artists. In the early years when I was working, Jared, I could not reach that self. I didn't know what I was trying to find. (laughs) Quite emotional about that because it was a very hard thing to do. But I realized that I was not going to reach that voice in my beautiful studio on the side of the kitchen because my mind was all the time on the children, on the cooking, on the next meal. And I wanted it to be on those things as well. And so I started working in Italy a week or even 10 days and and coming back and forth. And that was a very hard decision. It was very hard for me to be there. But it was almost as though the price I was paying for it was that I was beginning to, to reach into that. I think that when you do go into that part of yourself, you do reach that inner soul, that universal soul. And as you do it, your focus changes too. You're not focusing on yourself anymore. You're focusing on the human condition. So whereas earlier my work was reflecting what I felt about my own emotional turmoils or other people's, my work opened up. And I think what I'm now reflecting is, is the human condition. It is about the way the that our spirituality is part of nature. We cannot cannot destroy nature without destroying ourselves. We cannot respect ourselves without respecting nature. And one of my heroes is Joseph Campbell, who wrote that pure art was a revelation, but it wouldn't be received by people unless they went to it with an open mind, without perception. And this is why I think the best shows I've had have not been in galleries where people come in with an idea of what they're going to see, but in open fields. And more than anything, when I did a show at Salisbury Cathedral, when people came there for somehow a spiritual experience and opened themselves to what I was doing and really responded. So I think that we have to break down the barriers between religion and, and art, between religion and society, and we have to have people more aware of their spiritual essence. So just going back when you said the children, I was one of those children, and, and I think <laughs> I mean, it kind of comes full cycle to the story about what our children want us to be and it's a fairly conventional view of life. I mean, children want a very specific thing from their parents, which is unconditional love. And I think you gave those and and thinking about, you know, what you were saying in terms of needing a distraction-free environment, certainly even doing this podcast when the kids were just back from their vacation and, you know, it's like crazy. It's nearly impossible to get anything done. So as a parent, I you know, now fully appreciate the importance of you going to Italy. And certainly when I was on the Pacific Crest Trail, one of the huge benefits of spending five months by myself was no distractions. And to me, one of the downfalls of of current civilization is we're so frigging distracted. Yeah. I mean, everything from our iPhones to constant messages to the internet. There's very, very little time that we have that isn't distracted. So 
I think you created an important model that showed a path forward, which is we all need time to just be by ourselves and contemplate. Joseph Campbell said that to to survive as spiritual beings, we need a time and a place every day to be by ourselves and to communicate with, commune with ourselves in a way. And that's what we forget. We're too busy. That's why I started meditating 20, 25 minutes a day, just because I had no time. At an earlier time in your life, as you were doing art, you were doing photography, you made the choice between doing law and trying to survive in a creative world. Do you think that being on that five-month walk was what putting yourself back into your creative soul? So, you know, doing a podcast is, for me, the the best of both worlds. It is creative, and I miss that creative part. One of the funny things about you is that you don't drive... I think that people waste more time driving and going places. If you don't drive, you stay in one place. And you or you have the, someone else drive yeah. you. But, but not often. No, I mean, you're right. You know, you're you, probably you a less mobile. You know, you stay in, in Italy. I don't, you know, I'm, I, I can be in the studio for days and yeah, I don't drive anywhere. If I want something, I'll walk and get it or I'd bicycle. And less and less people are getting their driving license because... Yeah. They can either take a bus or bike or not go somewhere. Yeah, but even early on, driving... No, you were an early advocate of not driving. Yeah. But if I have to, I can fix things. I mean, when something breaks down and there's nobody to do it, I'm, I'm incredible at doing it. I can manage, as you can see, better than most on, on the computer and on learning new skills. And I've always worked with my hands. In, in, I mean, always from the time I've been doing... Sculpture. I learned to work with a drill and, and not well enough because I remember when you were about eight, you came to Pietrasanta and I was working in the studio with my drill in my part. And one of the guys, Giancarlo, said, oh, I'll look after Jared. And I came in and there you were with a huge pneumatic <laughs> drill yeah. and, and, I, and with a piece, big piece of stone. And I said, are you crazy, Giancarlo? What are you doing with, with Jared? And he said, Elena, if only someone had sorted you when you were eight years old, you'd be fantastic today. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, that's true. That's true. That starting, you know, at 28 or 9 or whatever I was, that's late to start to learn. But no, I, but I did learn. And I'm, I'm, I, I remember in the early years I was when the head of the studio, Sam, would say to me, I was doing a really difficult thing. I was trying to learn. I was working with, with a, an artisan who I knew would die soon to do roses because I wanted to do layering. And Sam said, don't bother. I mean, there are people who can do that. And I said, no, no, I have to know how to do it to even be able to create it. And so I learned how to open up a rose so that I could do it myself. And yeah, there are probably a lot of people who could do it better, but that wasn't the point. And you're a master craftsperson. I mean, I, I can't believe the the things that you can achieve in marble that no one else can do. And that enabled me to 
open up the soul of the stone in a way so the light came through it and in a way bring out my spiritual idea, get the stone to represent that for me. So in terms of bringing together the two talents that you have, politics and art, you were very early on on the Arts Council for Great Britain, Mm -hmm. then you were the Vice President of the Royal Society of British Sculptors, you've done a huge amount to push the arts and arts funding. Perhaps because that's what happened with me. So I've been very proud of that Mm. involvement, both the role of the artist in society, which, and in in the time of the Greeks, the artist was like one of the highest figures in in society, and it was believed he had the ability to communicate what the gods looked like. He could bring them to people in the same way that, that angels in another time were considered the messenger of the spirit. We have that now, though. Like the most famous people on the planet are like Beyonce and Angelina Jolie and, I mean, artists, they're musicians. But you wouldn't say that Damien Hirst was considered a transmitter of... Well, well, yeah, he's a... He's he's a a celebrity. Yeah, and for those who don't know, he's the person that put a pig and a shark in formaldehyde and he's a fairly sensationalist artist. No, I meant, but Beyonce who's a musical artist, mm-hmm. she's still an artist in yes. terms of she's yes. she's the most, for instance, renowned person on the planet. If you look at her YouTube videos, she has three and a half billion people who've watched them. So what I'm saying is these people should, with that celebrity, should be able to have a message for society. They should be opening up something. They have that possibility. They have the voice. I agree. Do you view yourself still as an American or how do you, from a nationality, you spent much more than half your life in the United Kingdom and yet you seem very anchored in in the United States? I feel American. I think I'm much more involved in American politics and what's happening. I mean, I think my alternative life, if I hadn't married York probably would have been to go into politics early on. I worked for a congressman for Henry Royce, and he he said, you know, you'd be fantastic running for Congress. And you wrote the original legislation that yes, created that the, the Peace, Peace Corps. I did. So that's a huge... Yeah, that I mean, was a huge thing. You could have had an entire political career, most people do, and never have accomplished yeah. <laughs> something as significant. I mean, look at people like Dianne Feinstein or others. Yeah. yeah, I mean, they've had amazing careers. Yeah. That could have been you, Helene. Could have been me. But I don't how? think you can blame you. I mean, the no, yard part, no, you, no, went, no, no, no. you went to the museum in Naples and you saw oh, the Socratic no, no. sculpture. I never would have been satisfied with that. I might have, just like you, taken a walk one day and when I came back said, oh my goodness, I want to have a more reflective, creative life. Well, I want to thank you for being an amazing mother and inspiration. Thank you, Dad. Helene, thank you so much for being such an inspiring and transformative person in my life and to talking with me today. Your own tensions between creativity and politics, between being alone and flourishing with others, between family and work, between reality and myth are also my struggles. And so as I work to find balance with them, I really am starting to understand you better each day as well. 
In the next episode of Podship Earth, our intrepid reporter Sarah Amenzada travels through a snowstorm to capture the magic of the wild and scenic film festival. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey from the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spade, executive producer David Kahn, and from me, Jared Blumenfeld, if you're lucky enough to still have your mother in your life, please give her a big hug this weekend.